Amen. Good morning, family. So good to be with you this morning. We're in the series we started last week looking at five solas. Five Latin phrases with each Latin phrase beginning with the Latin word sola, which means only or alone. Five phrases, each which states one of five biblical truths about the Gospel. And these truths were at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. It's sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. Four important truths. It's the Word of God is the foundation upon which these are built and we, they are all about the Gospel, all about the good news of Christ. Some of you might wonder though, or you might be thinking, why should I really care about five dusty old truths from somewhere back in the dark times of history? What does that really have to do with us today here in the 21st century in America? And I think that's a perfectly legitimate and fine answer to ask. And I would answer that perhaps with a question. The question is this. What will happen to you when you die? When you die, what happens? Where will you go? You go to heaven? Will you go to hell? You know, the, the pollsters tell us, and I've read quite a few different surveys that have been taken over the last number of years, and the numbers vary according to the different polls, but it's somewhere above 80% of Americans still today in 2019, over 80% of Americans say they believe in heaven. I find that fascinating. Certainly, the majority of Americans aren't truly Bible-believing Christians. But the most, most Americans believe in heaven. But in my experience, in talking with people through the years, pretty much every time I ask somebody, do you believe in heaven? The answer I get is yes. And then I'll ask, do you think you'll be going there? And the answer I get is almost always the same. Well, I, somebody just said it over there, well, I hope so. I sure don't want to go to the other place. So I hope so. I find that fascinating. Death is the ultimate statistic. I often say that at funerals. One out of one people die. That's why it's the ultimate statistic. And the other thing that we realize as we get older is that life is short. I used to think 60 years was a long time. Any of you and some of you here this morning are past that. Some of you are getting close and you realize that 60 is like that. Young people, listen. Because life is short at its very, very best. It is short. I, I've said this before. 
Some of you may have been around and heard me say years before, I remember it wasn't that many years ago, my mom died last year at 97, back when she was a mere 92. Five years ago, one day I was with my mom and she thought she was dying. And mom looked at me and she said, and she thought she was dying, she said, I always knew this day would come. I just didn't think it would be so soon. And she's 92. And yet that's the truth for all of us. Whether death comes at 12 years old or death comes at 100 years old, it comes soon. And so this question, where are you going? What's going to happen to you when you die? is not some theoretical far-off question. It is something which is critical and vital to every one of us at any age that you are this morning. This question matters. And that's why these five statements are so important. is because they're all about salvation, the Gospel, how we are saved, rescued from hell, and destined for heaven. That's what these five solos are all about. So last week we looked at the first of these five phrases, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And and again, that means that the Scriptures alone are the ultimate authority. It means that if we want to know what's true, the answer is not found in the church. The answer is not found in some group. The answer is not found in, in what some preacher says or in what your opinion is or my opinion is or public opinion is. It's not consensus. The answer is found... In Scripture. See, ultimately, it doesn't really matter what you think. And it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what we all agree upon because in the end, none of us will answer to me. None of us will answer to you. But we will all answer to God. So the only opinion that matters is what God says and the Scriptures are our only authority because the Scripture is the Word of God. And so we want to know the truth about salvation, what it is to be saved, to be rescued, to head to heaven. We find the answers, the only dependable answers, in the Word of God itself. So today, we come here to look at the second sola. And by the way, these things matter today because it wasn't just a question 500 years ago during the time of the Reformation. It's a question that still matters to us today because we're still here today and it's still needed because, quite frankly, there is an awful lot of ignorance and there's an awful lot of confusion about the answers to this question. Where am I going when I die? But the answers are very clear in the Word of God, Sola Scriptura. So we come here this morning to look at the second one. We're taking one each week. We have... Now, today and three more weeks, today we look at the second sola. Sola gratia, grace alone. I'd encourage you to take your Bible, if you would, and open it to the book of Romans. We're not going to go there right this moment, but if you would, just kind of get it ready. The book of Romans and chapter 3. That's where we're going to camp out in just a few moments. As you're doing that, let me just talk about what this, this phrase, grace alone, what does it mean? 
First, let's think about that word grace. Grace is defined as unmerited favor from God. In other words, receiving good from God that we do not deserve. God is gracious. It's His nature. God is, the Bible says, He is merciful, meaning that He does not give us what we do deserve. A lot of times we cry out for justice. We want justice (laughs) until we realize what justice is. We don't really want to get what we deserve, right? We want mercy. (laughs) The other thing, God is merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve, and He does give us grace, what we do not deserve, the good we do not deserve. Scripture's loaded with statements to this effect. I'll just give us a few, just a quick taste. Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 9 says, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. You come to God looking for grace and mercy, He won't turn away. That's what it says. Book of Nehemiah chapter 9 and in verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end to them nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Psalm 86, by the way, the Psalms are full. The, the Psalms, this is a big theme you can find in Psalms, God's grace and His mercy. Psalm 86, basically quoting from from Exodus, he says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We find the grace of God all in the prophets. Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and He relents over disaster. Pretty much everybody agrees. God is gracious. They love and we love hearing about God's grace and talking about God's grace and singing about God's grace. The the controversial part of this little statement, grace alone is not grace. The controversial part is that second word, that little word, alone. Alone. Again, these phrases are speaking about our salvation and, and it, this phrase means that our salvation depends solely upon God's grace alone, not upon any worth or any value or any merit that we have and no contribution that we bring. Our salvation, as one writer put it, I think said it very well, our salvation is because of something good in God and not because of anything good in us. That's grace alone. We receive God's unmerited favor not because of any worth or merit of our own. That statement goes against, by the way, uh, it goes against much religious teaching in the days of the Reformation and still today. It goes against popular thought. I mean, this isn't a popular concept. It is politically incorrect to say that, you know, it's all 
about God, not about me. I mean, again, go back to that person that you would ask, do you believe in heaven? And again, most folks in America will say yes. And if you ask them, do you think you're going to go there? They'll say, well, I hope so. And then you ask them this, follow up with another question, ask, why do you think you might get there? Or what do you think you, what are you doing that you think will help you get there? Or, you know, why do you hope you're going to heaven? What's your hope built on? And again, almost without fail, the answer I'll hear from somebody is, well, I try to be good. You guys heard it. Be good. I try to be good. I try to do good things. I go to church whenever I, you know, it's not conflicting with, you know, fill in the list. And I, and I, I uh, give money to help people that, that need help. And I try to be nice to old people. And I try to, you know, try to do. Most people think that we get to heaven by doing something good or by being good in some measure. And that's really the question before us today. Is our salvation, do we go to heaven solely on the basis of God's grace, by grace alone, or is it in some way dependent upon us being good or you know, or even partially upon us somehow earning it? Is it fully or partially our work? Or is it all something God does? Now, hopefully you're in Romans chapter 3. This is where we're going to camp out on. And, and the answer is, go back to our first sola, the answer we find in sola scriptura, because again, it doesn't matter what you heard some pastor say once. It doesn't matter what you think or what public opinion is. What matters is what God says because He's the one we're going to answer to one day. Romans chapter 3. The first thing we're going to discover here in these verses, well, let me back up the train just a minute. Before I read, and I'm going to pick it up in just a moment in verse 9. We're going to read a few verses. The first two chapters of the book of Romans is building a case. And, and it begins with explaining that God is going to judge the unrighteousness, the godlessness, the evil of men. For the, the wrath of God is being poured out, unleashed upon all the godlessness and unrighteousness of men, it says in Romans 1. And it also goes on then to explain how justly and how rightly people are condemned whether they had God's law or they didn't. And then as we pick it up here in Romans chapter 3, it's explaining, in case we didn't get the message already, that the problem isn't just those folks out there who are evil and rotten and nasty, and those folks over there who are evil, rotten, and nasty. It's not just those folks. The problem is here. That's where we pick it up in verse 9. What then, he says, verse 9, are the Jews, are we Jews any better off? Obviously, he's talking to the Jews. He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it's written, 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's a little pick-me-up verse for the day. Very definitive and very inclusive. If you'll notice the words as we go through them, it is all, 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 no one, no one, no one, no one. His point is we are all guilty. Guilty. We are all, verse 9, it says, we are all under sin. means that we are all sinners. It means that every one of us is in sin's grip. We're under sin. We are under sin's curse. And we are deserving its punishment. Then, he begins after that, he begins building his case and he goes back to the Old Testament and he takes six Old Testament passages and strings them together to show us that we're all guilty. And I only read a few of them. He, I stopped at verse 12. He goes on six more verses. But again, let me just review what we read because what he says is no one is righteous. No one is right. Everyone's wrong. Everyone's messed up. No one understands. No one understands the truth. No one, verse 11, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. means they turned away from God. Together they have become worthless. And then he says, again lastly in verse 12, no one does good. Not even one. And then he keeps going, but we stop there. All of us. No exceptions. We have a tendency, and I'll use the royal we, we all do, and I do, we have a tendency to think we're pretty good. Not perfect. I mean, we look in the mirror and say, I'm not perfect. I mean, look there, look here, look right there. Not perfect, but pretty good. And we do, we do that by we tend to look around and we say, after all, I'm no Hitler. And I'm no mass murderer. And I'm no serial killer. And I'm not that. And I'm not that. And I'm not that. And we, we go down the list and we go, you know what? Look at how bad some of these folks are. I'm pretty good. Right? The Scripture says here, it says, not so. No one is good. Verse 23, if you skip on down, verse 23, and it's one of those verses many of you learned when you were young. Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's, the, here's what it's saying. It's saying that you and I, if we, we tend to measure ourselves by, you know, there's Hitler, he's way down there, and then there's... This person, there's this person, this person, but I'm still doing really good. But this verse, Romans 3.23, says we're using the wrong measure. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The measuring stick is not another person. The measuring stick is God. We're going to have to get something bigger than a yardstick. We've been using feet and meters to measure ourselves and we need miles. 
And by the standard of God, we don't even register a bleep on the righteous scale. Matter of fact, what we figure out is, it's telling us we're in the minus category. We have to look up to see down, you know. We're in bad shape. We're guilty. And it goes on over in three chapters from this. Romans 6.23 reminds us what has already been stated earlier in these chapters, and that is that the wages of sin is death. It's hell. We are condemned by our sin. We are guilty and we sin has a death penalty with it. We're on death row. Now that's all horrible news, but our text tells us it gets worse. Say, so how does it get worse than that? Well, quick little thing. I'm, I'm a do-it-yourself kind of guy. I love to do things myself. I have, well, at least at least once. Uh, some things I've done, and I'm going, okay, I'm good with that. You know, I pay now to get my oil changed. It's not worth me doing that. But there's a lot of things I love to do myself, and I like just I like to try it. I even once built my own house. That was an adventure. I like to do things myself because, and if any of you are of that mindset where you like to do some things by yourself, you understand what it is when you finish something and you step back and go, "Ooh, I did that." Right? It feels good to do things ourselves. Our text tells us something else about our problem. But you see, most people, when they come to this problem of sin, the exact thing they try to do is come at it like a do-it-yourself. Yeah, I'm a mess, all right. You're right. Bible's right. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. But here's what I'm going to do about that. Look at what our passage tells us. Look down in verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's what he says. You and I, we are helpless. What he says here is we cannot earn Justification, being justified. What that word means, it's a legal term. It means being declared innocent. It means, means being set right. The law declares you, you are right. We can't earn it. He says by doing works of the law, doing good works, doing good deeds, he says it doesn't cut it. Nothing you and I can do will accomplish us being justified, being made right in God's sight. That's what Romans 3.20 says. Matter of fact, it goes on and what it says is that all our attempts to do that, all our attempts at trying to keep the law and do good things, all it does simply is expose how we are continued failures and we are sinners. Instead of removing our problem, it just keeps adding to our debt. And our debt increases and it never shrinks. Our debt of sin. Kind of like our national debt, but that's another story. The Bible gives an awful lot of pictures to illustrate this same thing. We are in a helpless and hopeless condition as sinners. Let me just give a few of those. There's no way I can cover them all, but just a few that will help us see 
is, is it just this and we're misreading this text? No, it's all the way through Scripture. Here's one picture. We are spiritually blinded, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel and the glory of Christ. See, even if we want to see the truth, the Bible is saying our natural condition is we're blind. Satan has blinded us so we're ignorant of truth. Prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17 says our condition is that we are corrupt to the core. says the heart of, is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You can't fix things in yourself because you are messed up inside at your very core. The prophet Isaiah says about all those good works we think are going to help us out, Prophet Isaiah writes that our good is not good enough. How then can we be saved? Isaiah 64 asks in verse 5. Verse 6 goes on, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The very best good works we can do are tainted and contaminated with our sin and the crud in our life. I was trying to think, how do I illustrate this? You know, it's just, I don't know, but a guy's working down in the sewers all day long, working in the muck, and, and, uh, and he comes out of the sewers still covered with all the, the stuff where he's been working all day. He pulls out a bag lunch, pulls out a sandwich, take, breaks it in half and says, here, you want some? That's the best illustration as I can think of of what it is when you and I as sinners try to do good works and impress God with, look, here's my good work. We don't realize it's contaminated with all of our stink around us. Our good isn't good enough. Probably one of the best pictures of our condition, of what, 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 how we are born into this world comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We read it earlier in our responsive reading. It says this, we are spiritually dead. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. I've been around a number of dead bodies in my lifetime. I've noticed a corpse can do absolutely nothing. You can sit there all day long and tell it to do something. What does a corpse do? It lays there. It can't do anything. And he says that's our condition spiritually. We can't help ourselves because we're dead. That's the Bible's description of us. Again, it's not politically correct. But it's the absolute truth. We are sinners. We are condemned by our sin. And we are helpless to save ourselves. We are hopeless unless God intervenes. And praise God. That's where grace comes into this chapter. It's where grace enters the scene for us. We are guilty. We are helpless. But God. I'm going to go back to chapter 3 and verse 23 of Romans. For all have sinned. We said this earlier. And fall short of the glory of God. Look at verse 24. And are justified... It means made right, remember, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith 
few things I have to just point out from this. First it says, we are justified. There is hope to be made right. We can be and will be made right, forgiven, moved from death row into a good standing with God. Moved from enemies with God to being His in His family. From having our debt hanging over us that is impossible to pay to having our debt paid. Having the case settled. The books closed. Court adjourned. It's done. Justified means it is we are right. It's done. Period. We are justified. What does it say? How does it say we're justified? What's the next thing? We are justified by, what does it say? His grace. We are justified by God's grace. Again, grace is receiving what we do not deserve. Do you deserve to be justified? No, we don't. We deserve the penalty of our sin. Notice what else it says. We are justified by God's grace. What's next? As a gift. It's a gift. Something we did not earn. Something we could not earn. That's the nature of a gift. Romans 6.23, I quoted quoted it a minute ago, for the wages of sin is death. We do earn something in life. We earn death by the virtue of our sin. But righteousness cannot be earned. Being justified cannot be earned. We can only receive it as a gift. That verse goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death, but... Here's the grace of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, that's possible. We're, in a, we're, we're all guilty. We're all in a helpless situation. But God's grace is there that can justify us that can make us right. The question is, how do we receive it? And it says it right there in the text. How is this accomplished? It's God who, it's the redemption that's in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction. Jesus is the satisfaction of our guilt before God. And how do we receive it? To be received, he says, by faith. That's next week's Sola, so I'm not going any farther in that. But just spoil a alert, that's where we're going next week. Lots to say about that, but I didn't want to stop short of that this morning because you might be here this morning and say, I get it, I'm guilty. I also get it, I'm helpless. And it's good news that there's grace in God, but how do I get that? Well, it's right here. We receive God's grace by faith, by believing God, that He, through Jesus, has paid for our sin. That is incredible news. Now, we receive this grace of God simply by faith. But this is where that important little word alone comes in. It is by grace alone. Even at the time of the Reformation, The Catholic Church said, as it still officially says today, that we are saved by grace. We're saved by God's grace. Say, then there, what was the point of the Reformation? Why was there this break? Why was there this conflict? If that's what the church said, it's because the church redefined grace. 
You see, what they said is grace is what God gives to us as sinners in our guilt and our helplessness. He gives us grace so that we can do works that earn and achieve and merit is the word they use, our salvation. So it looks like this. Grace produces good works which produce a result in salvation. And that sounds very nice, but is it true? The point of the Reformers, what they said is absolutely not. It's not grace that produces works for salvation. It is grace alone that produces salvation. Quite frankly, a large portion of Protestants and Evangelicals today have missed the whole point of the Reformation. And they believe exactly that same thing, that somehow what we have to do is earn our place in heaven. We have to merit it. It takes works to earn salvation. But what we have seen already in the Scripture is it doesn't work that way. We can't earn it. And I take us right back to this verse we just looked at here in verse 20 where he says that we are justified by His grace as a gift. You see, something interesting happens if you take a gift and you try to earn it, it's no longer a gift. Trying to somehow earn it destroys the gift. If I just, you know, pulled out of my pocket a Rolex and handed it to Will <laughs> and said, Will, here's a Rolex. And he said, man, Keith, that is awesome. That's so generous. By the way, uh, let, me, let me make it up to you. Let me earn it somehow. Tell you what, I'm going to come over next time it snows and shovel your driveway. Matter of fact, I'd, I'd say, well, if you're going to do that, you know, let's do it for the next 30 years. And that might be a good trade. Let me... <laughs> The reality is a gift can be received, but once you try to earn it, it's no longer a gift. Now that sounds like something cute that I just made up, but the reality is I didn't make that up. It's right here in the text. If you just go over to the next chapter to verse 4 of Romans chapter 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The point is, if you start trying to earn the gift of salvation, you move yourself out of the position of trying of receiving a gift and you place yourself back over here with everyone who's trying to earn it, which we've already seen by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. Did the text not say that? It did. Works can't get us there and so... It's not ever going to happen by works. It's only a gift. And as soon as we add any works to that, it's no longer a gift. And it puts us back over there. That's what, he, that's what the text is saying. It is by, in other words, as, as our phrase today says, it, it is by grace alone which we have been saved. We read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, not of works, 
And it's not of your own. It is the gift of God. I just messed the quotation up, but that's okay. I just went brain dead for a second. But he says, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. It's the last thing, so that no one can boast. Go back to that whole thing. Why do I love do-it-yourself stuff? Because I love that sense of pride when I'm done. And I look at it and said, it's done. I fixed that. I made that. I built that. And I go, oh, you're good. I mean, that goes along with it. Maybe that's not the only reason I love it, but it's a sense of accomplishment. And what the Bible is telling us is that salvation is not something that we can ever do. And the reason is because no one is going to stand in heaven and be able to say, I got here because of anything I did. So that no one can boast, look what I did. Not in the smallest little bit. It's all going to be about what God did. That's why the song is Amazing Grace. That's why the song through, throughout the ages of eternity, the, the infinite ages of eternity, will always be about the grace of God. Not anything about weren't we smart. What, weren't we good? Didn't we do well? It's I was a sinner. But God is a great Savior. Martin Luther summed this up, this teaching up, and said it well. He said, man through sin has ceased to be good. He has no power to please God. He is unable to do anything but continue in sin. His salvation, therefore, must be wholly of divine grace, for He Himself can contribute nothing to it. And any formulation of the Gospel which amounts to saying that God shows grace, not in saving man, but in making it possible for man to save himself, is to be rejected as a lie. The whole work of man's salvation, first to last, is God. And all the glory for it must be God's also. Praise God for grace. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never given much thought at all to your eternity. What happens when I die for your sake? I hope that that changes this morning when you start thinking tremendously about that. Perhaps you've been here and you've been concerned about that for a long time, but you've been trying to simply be good enough, trying to do enough good things, maybe somehow that I can earn enough so that that day when I stand before God, He's going to look at me and say, well, you know, here's all this bad, but here's the good, and you're just, yeah, you you make it. You're in. I hope you understand this morning, the Bible says that does not happen. It cannot happen. It will not happen. No one can be saved by our works. The only hope that we have, as the Scripture has told us here this morning, is to, as it were, to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court and say, God, I get it. I am a sinner. I am guilty. I am helpless. But You and Your grace paid for my sin through Jesus on the cross. I believe You. I trust in Him. The Bible says at that moment, you are forgiven. You're you're 
sins, your guilt has been taken off you and put upon Jesus Christ on the cross. At that moment, you are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. At that moment, you are moved from being an enemy of God to being in His family. And we could go on and on. In a moment, everything changes. And if that's you this morning, I pray this morning that you will place your faith in Jesus Christ. For all of us who are believers in Jesus, so much I could say, so many implications from this. Let me just summarize and say it briefly this way. I encourage you to take some time this week and let's think about the grace of God. Think about the description of that the Bible paints of you and me before Christ, our natural condition, all those things we looked at, and we just saw a little bit of what Scripture says. And out of that, God, as Romans 5.8 says, demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God reached to us while we were helpless and hopeless, guilty, rebels, and He rescued us by His grace. That is a transformative truth. And the more that you and I are aware of and thinking about how deep our sin and how great God's grace, it changes us. It humbles us. But more than that, it drives us to God. Jesus said it this way, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. <laughs> the more we are aware of God's grace, the more we love Him. The more we are aware of God's grace, the more eagerly we will serve Him. The more we are aware of God's grace, the more freely we will share this good news of grace with people around us. Let's pray. Father, again, if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to respond to Your offer of grace in Jesus, I pray that even now in this moment in the quietness of their heart that they will say to You, Yes, Lord, I believe. I receive Your gift. I trust Jesus as my Savior. Father, for all of us who are trusting in Jesus, I pray that You will enable us, even as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, You will enable us to have the power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. That we might know this love that surpasses knowledge so we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This we ask in Jesus' name.